it'd be good um, if we could just pray together and not just pray for us I'd love you to pray join with me in praying for Andy Croft who actually was meant to be speaking tonight but one of his children is ill and in hospital and um, not dangerously ill as I understand it but it's never fun when your children are ill so let's just pray for them and also for us Father God we thank you that you're Lord of all and we're to bring our cares to you and we pray for Andy and for Beth and for their children and we pray that you would be healing Caleb and that you would take anxiety away from them all give them your peace and as we pray for them we pray for us that you might open our hearts to you afresh I pray that you take the things I've got to share tonight and they would make a difference to us in Jesus name Well, I'm not going to hide it from you. I'm thrilled to be talking. Uh, I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite characters from the scriptures. Years ago, in fact, I can be precise, in December the 8th, 1980, I became a follower of Christ. Hooray. It, it, it was fantastic. And um, within a very short time, uh, I was at university then, and within a very short time, a close number of close friends also became followers of Christ. And I can remember we were sitting in a small group together doing a little Bible study, and a thought went through my head. I wonder where we'll all be at in five years' time, ten years' time, twenty years' time. I wonder where we'll be faith-wise in that period. I wonder how fruitful we'll be for God and his kingdom. And I, I remember looking at each, each of them, sort of scanning them, because they couldn't tell what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. And I was resolving myself, and I still am resolved to this. Lord, as far as I'm concerned, every week of my life that goes by, every day of my life that goes by, I want to be closer to you at the end of the day than I was at the beginning, at the end of the week, at the end of the year. That, I think, is the right trajectory to hold onto and hope for. Now, I've had years to think about what makes a difference. What is, it, what is it, what are the ingredients into our lives that can increase the chance of us being productive and staying on track with Christ? That's what I want to talk about tonight. So if you don't want to get closer to Christ, you can leave now. But why would you be here? Of course you want to. And what's true of individuals is also true of churches, also true of God's communities and families. What makes a difference whenever Christians are meeting together? What helps churches fly? And I'm not going to talk about what helps them sink. But what is it? And we're going to do a little study together of that. And we're going to focus it all around one man and he's a backroom man in the New Testament you, you have to work quite hard to find out about this man but I've done the work for you and uh, it would be terribly encouraging for me if I saw a few of you making notes during his talk so that you could actually look up the references his name is Barnabas now I'm hoping we're gonna there we go what does it take 
to run a great race or to make a church fly. And I was thinking, what's the plural, plural of Barnabas? Lots of Barnabai, I suppose. That, that's what we need. If, if you sat down and asked me candidly, Rupert, um, what's been so helpful for keeping you growing? Yes, yes, the odd sermon has really helped. I sort of feel committed to believing that, seeing as I spend a lot of my life writing talks like this. I like to feel they're helpful. I can remember quite a lot of sermons that I've heard. That's made a difference. Lots of prayer times have made a difference. Lots of Bible studies made a difference. But without question, individuals that have walked alongside have made a huge impact. And we all, we all need that, do we not? And I'll tell you why. You know, this guy Barnabas, we're going to look at seven things that he grafted into his life that make him effective. And I can encourage you with honesty and say one of the encouraging things about all seven is they're achievable by all of us. You know, sometimes you hear the odd motivational talk or whatever disguised, but it says some, someone might stand at the front and they're an astronaut. Now, no astronaut standing in front of you could honestly say you could be an astronaut because very few of us could. Or very few of us listening to a great athlete, you know, they say you could play in a Wimbledon final. Well, we know perfectly well we couldn't. It doesn't matter how much you practice. But all of the seven attributes that make Barnabas such a key player, they are within reach. And that's an encouragement in itself. His name, as we discover, <coughs> is a nickname. He wasn't actually, um, no one was christened then, was he? But, but he wasn't actually Bermitsford Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas means son of encouragement. And we will see why he was called son of encouragement. Because if you do, and I've done it, uh, a study of the name Barnabas, you, know, you look it up in what's called a concordance, a, a little dictionary search. How often does the name Barnabas come in the New Testament? And you look up every single reference. Always, without exception, within a sentence of his name coming up is something encouraging going on. Now, one of the reasons we need encouragement is because the moment you decide to follow Christ, you're guaranteed the discourager will be on your case. There is such a thing as spiritual warfare. And the enemy is called in scripture the accuser of the brethren. It's his speciality. A little voice will whisper in your head, my life's making no difference. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. And any other number of discouragements will come to prevail. And we need a counter voice to that. Encouragement. So let's dig in, dive in, and consider seven distinctives that if you build them into your life, and I build them into my life, we will become encouragers. I'm going to take them in the order that they come in the book of Acts. So here we go. The first one is this. He was wholehearted in his commitment. And alongside this came incredible generosity. So you can see the reference here, Acts 4, 36 to 37. I'll just read it out. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, 
whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I cannot stress this first point enough. Don't be focusing on the money bit for the moment. What I want us to notice is he was sold out for the Lord. It becomes really clear that it wouldn't have mattered what day of the week you met Barnabas or what year of his life you met Barnabas after he became a follower of Christ. He was up for it. He was totally committed to following Christ. Now, this is a, a very basic point. But I think that not enough people grasp it. This is more important than talent. This is more important than natural giftedness. It's being a consistent, committed, intentional, wholehearted follower of Christ. That is the kind of disciple Jesus calls us to be. Isn't it? He didn't say to his disciples, you know, on a good day when the sun's out and the wind's behind and you feel like it, follow me. Because there are very few days like that. He said, if anyone would come after me, let, do you remember this? <laughs> if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Every day, that sounds like hard work. It can't be done without intentionality. It can't just be done when you feel like it. And the wonderful thing is, is if you are sold out for Christ in a consistent way, you will make a difference. You will cut a dash for the kingdom. Your, your light will shine. If ever I write a book on leadership, and it's pretty unlikely that I will, one of the things that I would say is I've discovered that whether your congregation is 10 or 800, when people walk into that community and they're sold out for Christ, you notice them. You can't keep them back. And they make a difference to what God is able to do in that worshiping community. It's true here at St. Mike's at Six. And if God wills it and we grow and we triple the congregation, if that's what happens, still those who come in and are completely sold out for him will shine and you'll notice them. And if the opposite happens and we shrink, still those who are sold out for Christ we will notice because that's how God builds his kingdom. And obviously, obviously Barnabas was sold out for the Lord because he does something absolutely extraordinary. He sells his wealth. He, he turns it into hands-on money and he puts it at the apostles' feet. Now, guys, if we're going to be encouraging, this is a very easy way to do it. I, I've never, ever heard of anyone who wasn't encouraged by other people's generosity. It, generosity is encouraging by the nature of things. In one of the churches I, I worked at, a church called St. Barnabas, actually, in um, West Kensington, Addison Road. Uh, very early on in its um, history as a church plant, a hundred young people went into this big building, which had a tiny congregation. The receiving congregation was about a dozen people. And they were meeting in this barn of a place, 
And whether it was summer or whether it was winter, it didn't matter, the congregation huddled in the chancel wearing at least one overcoat and any number of layers underneath because it was so cold. And you can easily understand, even I can understand, that this rather elderly congregation was quite apprehensive at the arrival of a hundred young people, we were all uh, 25 years old or less, suddenly arrived as a church plant, which I had sort of accepted um, as a fait accompli. It was either accept this group of people or we'll shut you down to the church. So sort of with a gun to our head like that, we said, oh, well, if we must, okay. But a turning point in the whole history of that church and how things went was a gift day. And on this gift day, we were asked as a congregation whether we could give towards a target. And I can't remember the exact amount, but it was a, a, a lot of money. Uh, it probably was about 30,000 uh, pounds in about the year 1982-83. And it was for a new heating system. And uh, absolutely remarkably, through the generosity, the outrageous generosity of those young people, that amount of money was pledged. And it wasn't long before the whole building became warm and hearts melted with the heat. But also, it was really the generosity. We all saw we were in this together. We were committed together. You know, it's lovely. I can stand in front of you today. It just happens that I'm shortly sending out a letter to all St. Michael's congregation. And it starts thanking the congregation for their generosity because through amazing generosity, the ongoing costs of this church have been met for this year. Doesn't mean we can sit on our laurels because there are still some capital projects we want to do, but it's incredible and wonderful to say that. And the simple point I'm trying to say here is generosity is encouraging. Generosity is encouraging. And wholeheartedness is essential. So that's, that's the first point. So you should, I hope, listening to this talk, you should be asking yourself, so how wholehearted am I? And, I, you know, I'm not asking the hands up for that, but it's the Lord knows. I, I want to add a little bit, this is an ad-lib aside, you'll enjoy the Christian life a lot more if you're fully committed. You'll get a lot more out of it if you're fully committed. I never know if this is a wise thing to say or a foolish thing to say from the front. But, you know, if you're walking with one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom, you're cruising for a bruising and you're not going to enjoy it at all. The bit I'm not sure if it's wise to say is, you know, why not get out and enjoy the world to the full? Or get in and enjoy God's kingdom to the full. But you won't be able to straddle the gap. You need to be fully committed. So, going to move on. The next thing that you notice about Barnabas is if he was your friend, he was your friend for life. He had your back. You know, it, it's not difficult to be friends of people once they've made it. It's not difficult to be friends who are hugely popular. But it's very difficult to stand by people when they're unpopular. And actually, we all owe an amazing debt to Barnabas because 
it seems from what we read about him in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, 27, which is in front of you, that he rescued Saul. Let me read you the little passage. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. Now, that's not surprising. This guy Saul, prior to his conversion, he'd been the one, basically, he was an ethnic cleanser. He just grabbed Christians by the throat and had them executed. That's what we know he, he was doing. He was standing there consenting when they were stoning Stephen. So no wonder, no wonder the followers of Christ ran for the hills whenever Saul's name came up. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. What I see here is that Barnabas was prepared to back the underdog. He staked his reputation on, you could say, on this loser at this point. And it's just as well he did. Because, just think about it, so much of the New Testament wouldn't have been written had he not gone out of his way to bring Saul into the fold. Can you do that? Is there someone that you know who's having a hard time of it as a Christian that you could stand up for, that you could encourage, that you could make look good when they're not there? That's a wonderful thing to be able to do, and it's wonderful when people do it for you. Well, I'll move on. A third thing that Barnabas did, which is encouraging, and is a rare gift, is he could see what was good in people and in situations. This is not common. You know, in Acts 11, we read this, the Lord's hand was with them, that's the scattered disciples, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of a church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. I remember when I was just setting out on the raid of, of um, preaching, and it was, must be one of the first sermons that I preached. Actually, it was in St. Barnabas as a 20-something-year-old. And you know, when you're standing in front of a congregation and, and you've worked jolly hard at what you've got to say, but you feel incredibly vulnerable um, and you're all together very aware of your shortcomings and weaknesses and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe it was the fourth or fifth sermon that I preached and I had jolly well tried. And at the end of it, I, I went and stood at the back of the church next to the door. And this young, young lady, I can remember her to this day, and I can remember what she looked like, I can remember her name, and I have forgiven her. Uh, but she strode down the church, and she pointed a finger at me, and she said, do you know what was wrong with your sermon? And I think I was silly enough to say, no, do tell me. And I'm sure she delivered both barrels. And as she walked off, looking very pleased with herself, she said, I have the spiritual gift of criticism. 
which, uh, which I haven't yet discovered, actually, in the scriptures. But anyhow, never mind, she thought she had it. But Barnabas wasn't like that. If, if you were preaching in front of Barnabas, when he came to visit your church, he, he had eyes to see what was good. That's a wonderful thing to cultivate. Not just in other churches, but in other people too. Maybe in your office where you work. Maybe in the school where you work or wherever it is. Do you have eyes to see what is good? It would have been so different if that person had said to me all those years ago, do you know wh what you're doing right rather than what you've done wrong? It, it, it brings a whole new level of hope, doesn't it? We don't need to have a voice saying to us, you'll never do it, you'll never succeed. We need faithful people like Barnabas to say, keep going, you'll certainly do it. God won't let you down. And from what we read here, he demanded only one thing, that they remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. What a wonderful thing to go looking for and to encourage. I, I can remember not so very long ago, uh, leading a number of altar courses um, for pastors in the United States. And on what used to happen is you used to fly out from the UK and you'd lead a conference in a couple of centers. And in one of the very first uh, times I did this wa was in a, a very, very, very rundown, grotty part of Washington, D.C. And I flew out with someone I knew very well, actually a friend, which made at least, uh, that was good. And um, when we arrived at the conference center, uh, there were about eight people there. That's all, at the whole conference. And um, they never, all of them, actually sat through any of the sessions. So generally, there were about four people that we were talking to. It's very hard to get very worked up on a conference for four people in a large, large auditorium. And at the end of a two-day conference, and I, I think of the eight there, probably six were on what were euphemistically called scholarships to try and bribe them into the building. And uh, at the end of it, you know, I, I was quite crestfallen. I kind of thought, well, dear, this has um, really not gone well. It's, it's not great at all. And I don't know whether you're going to put this down to the wonderful can-do spirit, optimistic hope that generally is more prevalent in America, I have to say, than it is in the UK. But they took us out to uh, supper at the end of the conference, and they said, that was fantastic. That was really good. Thank you so much for coming to do this. And I thought, you know, this is flattery, all of it. And they said, no, 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 it really was good. Now we know what happens when you try to run an alpha conference in, in that part of Washington, D.C. Doesn't work. That's a terrific discovery. And, you know, it, it was enormously encouraging of, of its own way. We can laugh about it, but it, it made a big, big difference. And when I went on to the next place, which was a completely different story, you know, I went empowered rather than deflated. And I don't want you to think, I'm giving this next example, I don't want you to think that all I do is turn up to empty buildings to give a talk. But I remember the first week, maybe it's something that happens at the beginning, the first week that I started working in Cambridge. I, I got a phone call from a student who said, Rupert, could you talk on 
Saturday at such and such a college on such and such a subject. And then it was a long pause and they said, because we've invited eight other people and they've all said no. Which, which you know, it's nice to know that you're number nine on the list and they can't find anyone else. And when I rocked up, the only person who, who came, it was I think a lunchtime talk, was my curate. And uh, you know, we'd been working together for a very, very short time, about a month. So we're just getting to know each other. And not a single person came to the talk, so there was no talk. And later that afternoon, I was really amused and encouraged to have an email from her. said, Rupert, fantastic lunchtime. No heresies uttered. No one went home discouraged. No one <laughs> lost their faith. And she found something encouraging to say about an event which no one had turned up to. Well, anyway, that's enough trivial uh, illustrations. All, all I'm trying to say is, could you cultivate eyes to see what is good? Of course you could if you set your heart to do that. And it does make a difference. Okay, fourth thing that Barnabas did. When he talked about God, he was very realistic. And he actually was quite self-disclosing as well. He, he didn't just talk about the good times. He also talked about the hard times. This is something I've noticed speakers are not very good at doing. You know, we feel more comfortable talking about when everything's going well. We feel more comfortable talking about our prayer times which are happening and when we're seeing prayers answered. But actually, Barnabas did more than that. Part of his strategy of encouragement was he would talk about when God had opened the door of faith, but he would also talk about the hardships that he had to go through. And the reason that's encouraging is because it's reality. And when we have to walk through hardship, we won't be discouraged if we know that's what's on the table for us. So Acts 14, 21, they preached the good news in that city, won a large number of disciples, and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. I, I can remember in my very first week at university, the professor of my department called all the newbies together and sat us down and said to us, this is what's going to happen. In eight to ten weeks' time, you will be seriously tired. You will find yourself walking up this steep hill on campus to a lecture. You'll be really worn out, and you'll begin to say to each other, why on earth am I reading this course at Exeter University? I could be having fun somewhere. And when you find yourself doing that in eight to ten weeks' time, remember that Professor Leeper told you this would happen, and you need to get through it. And it was a very strange form of encouragement, but it turned out to be true. And this form of encouragement from Barnabas is a strange form of encouragement, but it turns out to be true. To know that we have to endure many hardships to enter the kingdom empowers us to walk through them. Now, he wasn't just, you know, a sadster. He could also, and he wasn't shy, of explaining and talking about the wonderful things. So in Acts 14, 27, 28, he gathers the church together and reports all that God has done through them and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
and you stayed there a long time. And I suppose, you know, if I was going to balance this talk out, I should tell you about a few Alpha conferences that went wonderfully well and lots of people were filled with the Spirit and went home rejoicing because that did happen. You know, both are encouraging in that they're true. Swiftly moving on, fifth thing, Barnabas was a person of prayer. We know this from Acts 14.23 when we're told, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. And I'm simply going to make a point that it is encouraging when you meet people of prayer. It is encouraging when you meet people who understand that building the kingdom of God is more than techniques and management modules and this kind of thing and that kind of thing. At root, it's relying on the presence of the Lord. And they're committing to spending time in prayer. And so, obvious question again, are you? Am I? Is, is this absolutely a fixed point in your world? Because it needs to be if you're going to become a person of encouragement. Sixthly, his bravery. He was willing to risk his life for God. Acts 15.25. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's just something about that. When you meet people who have walked the walk in the face of danger, it is extraordinarily encouraging. Costly, of course. I, I can think of at least two people, three people that I've met, for whom this is true, there was a Romanian pastor called Paul Negroot. And I remember him coming to speak about how he'd been a minister in Romania under the communist regime and how they had um, arrested him and told him that if he continued to preach the gospel in his church, that they would attack his wife and attack his children and probably kill him. And they did do that. They attacked and raped his wife. They attacked his children. And he kept going with the gospel. And you know, one was naturally in awe of his presence. He was a very small, uh, quite a quiet man. But I was in awe of, of such devotion to Christ. Actually, a rather strange thing was that as we sat and had a scrambled egg on toast after the evening service. He, he said to us, you know, Rupert, those days are much simpler than now. In those days, you just had to make one decision. And the decision was, would you die for Christ? But he said, these days, post the fall of communism, it's like death by a thousand qualifications. And you have to make up your mind, will you compromise on your faith in any number of areas? He says, I feel much more in danger today than I did then which was a wake-up call if ever there was one. But there you see it. it I guess it's coming back to this sold-out business, isn't it? And lastly, by way of attributes, it is his kindness. He was a kind man. You know, as we were sitting worshipping, I, I was thinking how today, for very, very, very many jobs, um, it's not like days gone by when you send in your CV and you might get invited for an interview and you'd have a chance to have a conversation and your personality would come out or whatever. Today, it's very often an assessment 
of a computer test done under a time limit. And if you don't reach a certain skill score, you never make it any further. And uh, up pops a screen, I'm told, with an alarming efficiency very quickly saying, thank you so much, we'll leave it there. And I wonder if you've noticed that all the things that I've talked about, including this point, they wouldn't really show up on those kind of tests because they're, they're really all attitudes and character. And we can graph them in. And this one is, is fascinating. It's, it's his kindness. In Acts 15, a row develops over a guy called Mark. I'll read it to you. Barnabas wanted to take John, also known Mark, with them on the missionary journey. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't continued with them in the work. They, that is Barnabas and Paul, had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And I've sometimes wondered who was right, Barnabas or Saul or Paul. And the canny answer is they were both right. And the reason they were both right is, without question, John Mark needed patience. He needed forgiveness. He needed cotton wool treatment. He needed putting back together again. He needed his confidence restored. He needed kindness. He needed TLC. And everything we know <laughs> suggests that that really wasn't Paul's primary skill set at this point. I think it would have killed Barnabas to go alongside Paul again. But at this point in his ministry, Barnabas was just a man. He could see what was good. Wonderfully, by the end of Saul's life, Paul's life, in 2 Timothy, he refers in such a way to John Mark that we know the two were reconciled and he valued him. But it was kindness that was the cherry on the cake here. And the reason that Barnabas was kind to him, if he needed a reason, was because growing the kingdom of God is too important to hold it back to grudges. Some time ago, I read a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And it said of Lincoln when he was president that one of his generals in the Civil War, a man called Marshall McLennan, was unbelievably rude to Lincoln on every occasion. In public and in private, he would slight him, he would put him down, he would belittle him. He was, he was monstrous in his behavior. And lots of Lincoln's friends said, why don't you fire him? You know, get him off your staff. He, he, he's a disgrace. And Lincoln had absolutely no pride at all. He said, I would hold his horse for him if it would help him win the battle. And there's something of that about Barnabas, isn't there? He, he would come alongside absolutely anyone if it would help them build the kingdom of God. So my last closing point is this. How? What makes a person like this? How do you and I become effective like this? How do we graft these things in? And I've got sort of good news and 
fair to use in a way, but that's actually it's good news and better news, really. You can't do it on your own. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can do it. And why it's good news, bad news, is it's going to take cooperation of both. I don't see this as a work of magic that just happens. It's not the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden you're kind. Or the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden you're sold out. It takes the cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit. Between me and the Holy Spirit. And, and it's a day by day by day commitment. And I want to encourage you by saying we can grow in these things little by little. You know, I've put them on the table now. I, I've dug them out of the scriptures. They're little nuggets that you know, sit on the table now for you to see. But it's, it's going to be you and me that prays, okay, Lord, I've, I've learned tonight that maybe I'm not consistently intentional about serving you. Well, as far as I can in my strength, I want to be, but I need your Holy Spirit's help for that. And you can repeat that little idea was prayer. You know, I, I know I've heard hundreds of sermons on prayer. I know it's generally a good thing, but actually, Lord, you know how many days I've shortchanged you. I, I need your Holy Spirit's help, and I will set aside the time. Or next time that you see something that winds you up and you're tempted to say something hugely critical, maybe a little nudge from the Holy Spirit will say, have you seen what's good in that person? And bit by bit by bit, this is how God transforms us. And as we catch it individually, so we will light up the company that we're in. And as we catch it corporately as God's people together, so we will light up the whole community that we're in. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this life of Barnabas, the backroom player, as it were. And thank you for how amazing it is that when we put the spotlight on him, we discover all sorts of attributes which we'd love to have grafted into our lives. And thank you that that's what you do, Holy Spirit. Thank you that the scripture says, if we say we haven't sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess, you'll be faithful and just and forgive us and set us on the path of righteousness. And Lord, we have to be honest and say, I'm sure each of us have failed in at least one of these areas. So we have sinned and let you down. We do but we ask your forgiveness and we ask for the joy of a fresh start. We tell you, Lord, we want to be those who shine the light of the kingdom and we want it to become habitual in our lives. Thank you for the people who encourage us. Thank you for the people, and there are many of them at St. Michael's, who radiate encouragement who can be relied upon to see what is good, who are praying, who are kind, who are generous. So Lord, build upon what you're already doing. Even here at St. Mike's at six, we ask you to do it. Even tonight, be at work amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name.